0: Book of Revelation is a controversial book in the church, and um, I think that the reason it's uh, so controversial is that uh, it's so valuable, that our enemy wants to create that division uh, regarding this book, so that there's... Confusion and anxiety over it, and a fear and trepidation of it. You know, I, I've spoken to ministers who refuse to teach the Book of Revelation, and uh, their justification is just that: it's it's going to create uh, confusion in the saints, and people are going to think weird things and do weird things based upon, it. So let's stay away from it. Let's let's not do it. Well. This coming Thursday, New Year's Eve, we're going to be here together, God willing, and we're going to take a look at end times prophecies and where we are in time in regard to um, prophecy throughout the scripture, a number of things that we're going to look at there. And uh, I'll make the point now that I'm going to make then that twenty six point eight percent of the scripture is prophecy right you know i just was talking to a brother this morning who uh got this large cabinet for his family for christmas that you know some assembly was required and uh The directions were all in a foreign language, no English directions whatsoever, and limited pictures. So you have to interpret. See, there's a whole bunch of instruction that's left out, and it creates a massive amount of confusion, a tremendous amount of misdirection, you know, get done and you've got all these spare parts. You know something's gone wrong. Things. When you leave out prophecy from the scripture, you're leaving out a massive chunk. Not just, oh, you know, the future things we couldn't possibly know about. Number one, that's not true. Okay. And uh, number two, so much of what we're reading and understanding and just the practical application of God's word pertains to what's contained in prophecy. You you interpret it through that lens. You come to understand the teachings of Jesus through the lens. Remember, right, Matthew chapter 16, the religious leaders show up. Jesus has been performing miracles. In the chapter previous, he's literally taking, it says, the maimed and restoring them. That's people who've lost limbs. You go to see Jesus without a hand, and you come home with two hands. Right? You know, people who've lost an eye, who had portions of their bodies decay because of leprosy, and when they leave talking to Jesus, they're made whole. He feeds 5,000 in chapter 14. In chapter 16, he feeds 4,000. And the Pharisees show up and say, Why don't you show us a sign? I mean, are you kidding? This ministry is filled with the miraculous and Jesus rebukes them and says you know how to interpret the sky but you can't interpret the times when the sky is red at night you know it will be fair weather tomorrow when it is red and threatening in the morning you know it will be bad right we say that right red sails at night sailors delight red sails in the morning sailors take warning it's a truth it's not interpretable. That's a real thing. And Jesus is saying, if you can look at the sky and learn how to interpret what's in front of your eyes, notice the miracles that are being done in your presence. And then he says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Right? No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. He says elsewhere in the Gospels that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Prophesying of his resurrection right there in the moment. He rebukes them for not understanding the prophecy of the Scripture and being able to interpret the times. Lots of people misinterpret the times. You remember when Jesus said to the disciples, particularly Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom. And from there, you know, people misinterpret and say, right, so Peter's gonna stand at the pearly gates, and he's the one that lets people in, and they got all this stuff. Okay, if if you study what surrounds the scripture and the teachings regarding that, right there, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, when they achieved a level of instruction where they had learned so much that they could instruct everyone, they would ceremonially be given a key that they would wear. And it was a sign to the people who might receive instructions from them, this man has the keys of understanding. And what that symbolized is the same thing you have on your maps. We don't use maps anymore, but remember how down in the corner there were the keys, right? The straight line with all the hash mark lines across it was a railroad track, and you look, oh, and there's a railroad track, and here's this one, there's a ski area there, and there's a camping area there, and the keys, the symbols told you how to interpret the map. That is what Jesus was saying to Peter and his disciples. I'm going to give you the keys to interpret the scripture, to know and understand so that what you unlock in the scripture, right? Well, he said what you loose on the earth, right? Loosed in heaven, what you bind on the earth will be bound by heaven. That that wasn't to say you could then just interpret it any way you wanted to. He's saying, I'm going to give you the instructions that are going to make it capable of you to interpret the word of God so that you can then relay to people what has been bound in heaven and what has been loosed in heaven, right? We can't look at the map and, oh, there's the symbol for a bridge that's been demolished. The bridge is out over that r-. Well, I don't really like that. So I'll just, uh, you know, draw in my own symbol there. And when I give people directions, I'll tell them to go that way. no. The ministers stand in the pulpit today. The scripture has clearly defined fornication as a sin, homosexuality as a sin. But the ministers stand in the pulpit and say, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. Go right down that road. They do not have the authority to unlock those things or lock those things for people and let them go their own way. They must be interpreted by the keys Jesus has given to us. And that's what he was saying to his apostles. You know, 30%, how are you, 26.8% of the scripture is prophecy. You must know these things in order to interpret them. You know, one of the things in the book of Revelation, there are several places where pre tribulation rapture is confirmed. The church wrestles with this issue right? The church wrestles with whether there's even going to be a rapture, right? There are some people that say, I don't even think that's going to happen. The scripture clearly states it. Well, 1 Thessalonians, I mean, you can't deny that the scripture says that there's going to be a rapture. The question is, when is it going to occur? All of the apostles taught that it was going to happen before the tribulation the early church leaders said that anyone who taught other than that was a heretic and should be removed from the church that Jesus Christ was going to return and then there would be 7 years of tribulation and then he would set up his throne uh people you know today say oh that's a relatively new teaching that's emerged in the church you know Darby started that whole thing and then you know Timothy Lehay and all of his followers it, No, no, no. The the very first teachers in the church within the first 50 years, not even the first 100, within the first 50 years, were warning the church to stay away from anyone that did not teach the immediate return of Jesus Christ. When you're in Acts and it says they sold everything that they had and lived together, that's because they didn't think they were going to be here very long. Who cares? Sell all the property. (laughs) give the money to the poor, we'll all just hang out. You need stuff? I'll get it for you. You know, you're a good cook here. Cook for all of us, you know, everybody lived communally. Because they thought Jesus was going to be back any moment. And that's how the church has always taught. It's only been in recent history that the church has moved away from that idea and started creating other ideas. We need to hold to the word of God and what is taught here the very title of the book, right? People will often, and, and please don't think I'm criticizing you, they'll often say, you know, revelations, plural. It's a singular revealing that Jesus Christ gives right here. And it is of the end and all things. You want to know what's going to happen? Boom. Boom. Revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the church teaches or acts like, oh, you shouldn't study that. You can't really know what's going on there. No, it's the revealing of what's going on there. The exact opposite is contained within, oh, well, it's actually called the apocalypse. And, oh, we all know what that means. No, I guess we don't, because of the apocalypse means the revealing. It doesn't mean the catastrophic Events that destroy us all, it means the revealing. For us that are believers, the end of this thing is eternity in the presence of God. Right? I mean, just close the book and go home, right? The answer's in the back of the book. We win. You know, our enemies lose. This is a needed revelation, and especially now, in this time in history. So, verse 1, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which was given him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, the revelation that's given here and the fact that it says it will shortly take place again, we have to view through the lens of the scripture. Peter warned us that in the last days, people would begin to say, oh, where is this coming of the Lord that you guys have predicted? They've been saying that forever. I'm paraphrasing. It's not going to happen, is what the mockers begin to say in the last days. So, this shortly take place. 2,000 years have passed since Jesus Christ ascended. And people said hey, it's taking too long. Not in God's economy, right? I'm sure you've ridden with children in the car. It's such a joy. You yeah. know, we all know, right? I mean, it's a predictable humor. You know, are we there yet? And just my youngest daughter is here, let us in- Worship, And uh, she grew up with me answering that question, you know, are we there yet? And I would say, yes, get out, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> feel free, just open the door, don't, I'm, nothing's stopping you, I'm I can even <clears throat> cruel, sarcastic, however you want to view it. Um, for a child, a 300 trip to New, 300 mile trip to New Hampshire to see their grandmother was grueling right for me having driven it hundreds of times you know it's almost like wow i'm in durham how'd i get here you know it's just you don't even remember getting on the turnpike and now you're in new hampshire and just everything blurs by you know whatever and however you want to interpret that older more callous dead to the world i'm just routine whatever i don't It's a different experience for me. The Lord is eternal. And Peter told us to not be deceived, that with the Lord a thousand years is but a day, and a day is but a thousand years. And the scripture tells us that Israel would fall under persecution for two days, and then the Lord would restore them. They reject Jesus Christ and crucify him, and the persecution comes upon them, and nearly 2,000 years pass, and Israel is restored. Two days by God's economy. thousand years is but a day. A day is but a thousand years. 2,000 years have passed. It's just two days on God's calendar. We're interpreting this from this side of things. These things are going to shortly take place. Come on. How soon? When are you coming back? You know, are we there yet? And uh, he says, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we're there more than you realize. Again, listen to what Peter says when he says, you know, don't be deceived. God is patient. He's not slack as some consider slackness. He's patient, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. The reason the Lord's taken the time he is, is so that you and I will get on the bus. We're so slow, our culture, our society, us as individuals, slow to respond to his grace. When he's fulfilled all that will be saved, then he shifts the gear and moves into the next phase. So these things will shortly take place. It came to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. So John is telling us, I was as accurate as I possibly could be. Then he makes the statement in verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep these things which are written in it, for the time is near. Listen, there's the answer to the critics of prophecy. Just read it and listen. I don't really know how to interpret all these things. I haven't got all that education and knowledge of all those other locations. Good. Just listen. Read it. You know, one of the best things that happens in the book of Revelation as you just read it over and over again. And I'll say this, right? I get this complaint a lot. I have attention deficit disorder and I can't read and I, I struggle and I have dyslexia. And okay, you know got an application on my phone. I had to pay for it. It's called the Word of Promise. If you're not familiar with it, it's the New King James Version of the Bible. And people are reading it in a theatrical way. And they are Hollywood stars and names that you know. And it's really entertaining. And you can just listen to the Word of God being read to you. No one's preaching a sermon, no one's interpreting. It's just the Word of God. It's character developed. So, you know, so Richard Dreyfus is Moses for real. You know, Stacy Keach is, uh, he does Job and Paul. You know, it's, it's a great thing, it's really easy to listen to. You struggle to read the Word of God, and the nice thing is is it moves right along. So when it's on verse 1, that's highlighted, and you're listening to it. And when it moves to verse 2, that's highlighted, and you're listening, and it moves right through. And if you just let it play all day, it's just reading you the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. In our day and age, there's no excuse for not being in the Word daily, constantly absorbing You want to just listen, and then the next thing that kicks in is, what does that mean? Ah, go find out what that means. I wouldn't know how to find out. You must have the Internet. (laughs) Accessible in some way. Type the question in. You know? The answer will come back. That will also mold and shape the algorithm of your searches, and you'll start getting biblical answers readily. Be a student of the scripture. You have to listen to it. Blesses he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, listen, as you start studying this, these seven churches that he's going to address in a couple different ways are in Asia at this time. Now, there were more churches at the time, I personally am of the opinion that the Lord chose these seven churches because they were prominent and they were very influential in the other churches' existence. But there's also a historic significance of the phases that the church has gone through since Jesus Christ departed. And if you do an application to the time periods, it gets really interesting the changes that the church has gone through and the Lord addressing them. So we'll examine that as we begin. John's addressing them, and he says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, we've all heard, and he's going to say it again, Jesus Christ declare, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the ever-present One." And if you've been around my teaching, you've probably heard me explain this many different times. The Lord right here, and in the passages throughout Revelation, is saying, all things are the present to me. We often say it incorrectly, because all we have ever experienced in life is the present. That's it. The present. The immediate present. It's that thin line of where we touch the ground in the present, you know, existent moment. The past is gone. And your memory of it is horribly flawed. You know, partly because your memory is difficult to retain. And secondly, it's your perception of the past. I began to notice this as a teenager where I'd get around relatives and I'd be reminiscing about, remember that time when we were, and you start telling the stories. And, you know, my cousins would be like, that's not how I remember it. And then they explain it. Oh, the missing piece. I didn't understand that portion of it. My perception of the past is just where I touched the ground. I definitely have no insight into the future, right? I have wrestled with the future a lot. I have a wild imagination. Some people really struggle with this like I do. (laughs) You determine you know how things are going to turn out and you base your present behavior on what you think is coming and, wow, the disappointment. We don't know what is out ahead of us. So being that we only ever touch the present We often say, I've heard many of the preachers say, God can see the future. That's not how, how he's saying it here. What he's saying is, I am in the past presently. I am in the future presently. And I am in the present presently. All things are the present to me. And conceptually we go, okay, and then your mind starts to wrestle with that and you're left just popping circuits because you cannot handle it. If God wants to change the past right now, reform history, and your mind might be going, not possible. How do you know it's not possible? This is God. He is handling the past and handling the future and handling the present. This, this is why. Right? Don't expand too far into that. Try to stay here on this focus. But this is why he can speak of all of these things with a hyper-accuracy. Because he is presently in the future. This is actually where the argument of Calvinism and Arminianism comes into play. Was I predestined according to the scripture? Yes, you were. Well, do I have to choose according to the scripture? Yes, you do. Well, which one is it? Is God sovereign and predestining things and we are making choice? The answer is yes. (laughs) Try to wrestle with that the rest of your life or just accept it. When God says, you are saved. That's because he's in the future and you're there with him. But for a guy like Judas in the present, he's convinced and everyone around him is convinced that he is saved. But the Lord is saying, Well, actually, I'm in the future and Judas is not here with me. So he can say, Of Judas's. Appearingly saved state of existence? No. He's not predestined because the foreknowledge I have is I'm in the future and he's not here. He's going to fall away. Well, so you could lose your salvation? Well, then it becomes did you ever have your salvation? Right? John said of the false teachers, they went out from us because they never were of us. They were in the midst of the church and john said they left because they never were of us had they been of us they never would have departed from us the foreknowledge of god so here we get that glimpse you're going to have this grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits and he'll interpret that for us who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, and keep in mind, every time this is being said, it's talking about Jesus, his name, Christ, his positional title. He is the only in all of history, in all of eternity, the only Savior of all things. That's what the term Christ, the anointed one, right? The you know, today you'll hear people talk about, oh, well, You know, the Muslim Messiah. No such thing. No such thing. There's only one Messiah. His name is Jesus. And he is the Christ of all creation for all of eternity. The Lord is putting his authority on him each time he says, you know, Lord Jesus Christ. So here, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Now, The cults misinterpret that, turn this into some kind of thing that Jesus became the firstborn when he was resurrected from the dead. No, the idea is the most important born one who was resurrected from the dead, right? Because there were resurrections prior to Jesus Christ. As far as numeric order, we can go back into the Old Testament, and find the prophets raising the dead. We can see Jesus raising the dead, right? He he isn't first in numerical order. He's first in importance. So here, he's the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Such a significant thing. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. People are really struggling with that right now. you know. Trump, Biden, stolen election. Scripture tells us that the Lord takes down the king that he wants to and puts up the king that he wants to. If we end up with a president that we don't want, if we rebel against that, then we're rebelling against what the Lord has done. And listen, I'm all for the fight, man. Let's resist and win back the stolen election, but if we see someone on the throne that we think shouldn't be there, apparently that's what we need. This, this nation needs to repent of its sin. Now here, Here's a level of hypocrite for me that just blows my mind. We should be the police force of the whole world. We should be. I'm not saying that for my own opinion. Where we judge from is the scripture as a nation. And there's great injustice being done all around the world. The Sudan, in particular, right now, needs US troop involvement, in my opinion. It's, it's, it's a tyrannical takeover by Muslim insurrection. It's it's so wicked. We need to be involved in many of these locations. But how can we go to another nation and say this is a human rights violation as we simultaneously kill 1.6 million of our unborn children every single year? It's outrageous. That's outrageous. It's like being a hardened criminal and a police officer at the same time. The hypocrisy is astounding. And what we see going on all around us. Jesus Christ is the one who sets up and tears down kingdoms. And this nation needs to repent. And if this nation needs to experience hardship and difficulty and discipline and punishment to bring us to our knees further, then embrace it. Right? The Lord disciplines those that are his own. If we don't experience God's discipline, Hebrews tells us that we're illegitimate children. We have to be corrected by our God and our King. So pray, pray that the Lord will sway and hold and keep the direction we're going. But if he steers us into something else, then he is the one. Then the statement to him who loved us, washed us from our sins in His blood. Forgive me for being repetitious, but I just love the illustration in communion of Jesus Christ's blood. You know, long before we understood the principles and properties of blood, the Lord Himself chose that as the symbol for His agreement with us as the New Testament Church. Blood brings everything to us that we need to live. It absorbs oxygen and nutrient. And carries all of that around the body to deliver life. And at the very same time, it captures all that is poisonous from the body and drags it away to dispel with what would destroy us. Blood is the perfect symbol for what Jesus Christ did for the whole human race. He provided life. Through the shedding of his blood. And he gathered up everything that would destroy the human race. and carried away to dispose of it for all of eternity. His blood has washed us from our sins. And has made us kings and priests. To his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is one of a series of verses that I personally use. To promote the idea of abstinence from drugs and alcohol. You turn to Proverbs chapter 31. And you see probably Bathsheba speaking to Solomon using his pet name. Right? I call my wife Kitty very often. Because... All that cats are, my wife is. She loves cats and kittens, and also, you know, you find a nice spot of sunshine, and that's where she'll be reading her book. And just, you know, she likes the heat, likes the warmth, just so many characteristics that are that way. Bathsheba referred to Solomon as Lemuel and told him, It's not for kings to drink because they will forget God's law, and they will pervert justice. We were all just named as kings and priests. My strongest advice to all of us is to abstain completely from drugs and alcohol. Oh, well, drink a little red wine, I drink a little beer, There's no, it's good for my heart. No, it's not. Most extensive study in alcohol consumption completed two years ago rocked the medical world because alcohol only destroys the human frame. It lends no benefits whatsoever. And for decades, the medical community has taught people, it'll do you good just in moderation, use a little... Then when they did the study, no, there is no benefit. It is only destructive in the smallest amount, in the most mild of deliveries. It is only destructive to the human frame. If you only use it mildly, then you're only destroying yourself mildly. You know, I'm not trying to preach a law. Don't get me wrong. If you consume alcohol, you're welcome to come to church here and be very at home. Okay. You know, if I end up at your house, you don't have to like throw all the alcohol into the woods or you know something like that. I'm not that's not where I'm at. What I'm saying, listen to me you guys, okay? <clears throat> How about this? We all read the scripture and we watch Noah We're just blown away with the obedience and the construction and the destruction and the new world. And wait a minute, now he's naked and drunk. What happened? How did we go and boy, the plausible explanations that come in. Well, I mean, Noah emerges from the ark and the whole world is destroyed and there's only eight people around. And, you know, I just... Imagine the depression. Imagine. Yeah, you'd have to imagine. So while we're imagining, let's do a different thing. (laughs) If we're going to imagine something. Imagine that the lifespan was dramatically longer before the flood. Oh, hey, it was. Imagine that it was dramatically shortened after the flood. Oh, hey, it was. Imagine that the laws of entropy were dramatically increased. The deterioration, right? All things are decaying. All things are falling apart. Imagine that it was dramatically increased after the flood in all things, including your grape juice. You crush out the grapes. And before, you used to be able to drink the grape juice, and it would still be fresh for days and days and days. But suddenly you're guzzling the grape juice like you used to do, and wow, it's got quite a kick afterwards. What's that all about? Now you blast that out of your mind, right? Here's what we can say, that the noble cause of Noah we saw before the the flood was dramatically tarnished by his moment of drunkenness after the flood. Consumption of alcohol produces regret. Sobriety. right? What did Jesus say? As he drinks of the cup, he says, I will not drink of this again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom. In the kingdom. That's my motto regarding all of that. I'm not going to consume any of that. Until, and I got to tell you, you know, there's a thing within me that enjoys that, that destroys my whole life in the process. That's why I don't listen to that desire anymore. Clarity of mind, right? People often come up after I do, you know, some extensive apologetic teaching and they go, Oh, can I have your notes and where would you get all this stuff and how do you remember all those things? Well, I can tell you that the use of drugs and alcohol has never helped me remember things or to teach them clearly or to be accurate in the delivery of them. Oh, you're pointing at me saying, I'm the preacher. Jesus Christ just said all of us are kings in his kingdom and priests to his message. There's a clarity that the world around us needs. They need to see us living this out in a pure sense and delivering to them faithfully the word of God. So consider, I know that's a long rant on that one subject, which isn't actually contained right here in the passage. But remember how I said the keys that we learn will help you to unlock and lock things? It's important that we be of sober mind. Peter, over and over again, told the church and the readers of his epistles, be sober, be vigilant, be sober and vigilant, be vigilant and sober. I get the sense that that guy wanted me to be sober, to be clear of mind. So here we are kings. He's made us kings and priests to his God and Father To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, amen. One of the things we're going to concentrate on Thursday night is what's going on in Turkey and the surrounding Arab nations There's a great division in the Muslim community right now as many of the Muslim nations are making peace accords with Israel. Turkey, in particular, is winding the Muslim community up to go to war against Israel. And the scripture tells us, Ezekiel 38 and 39, that Gog and Magog, which, by the way, is Russia, and those Muslim nations are going to come down out of the north And invade Israel and try to take it over. And they will be destroyed in the process by the lightning which falls from the sky. I guess you can interpret that many different ways in our modern age of warfare. But in the process, the nation of Israel is going to recognize Jesus Christ as their Savior. We're right on the doorstep of a whole bunch of things unfolding And being seen by us. And one of them is the nation of Israel recognizing the one who they have pierced. Crucifying him and thrusting the spear through his side. We're we're on the doorstep of that. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. The great terror that will come. Here, stated again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Almighty, above all other things, above all other forms, the Lord God is the one who is of absolute authority. I, John, both your brother and companion, in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, words have meaning. Okay, <clears throat> Watching one of the government officials answering questions about the Dominion voting machines. They're not supposed to legally have been connected to the Internet because they can be hacked. manipulated and they're asking him were these machines connected to the internet and he says only the machines with modems were plugged into the internet the man asking the questions waits and then says were any of them wireless and he steers right away from that question and he drags him around to it, and he finally has to answer, yes, they're all wireless. Were they connected wirelessly to the Internet? And after he hems and haws and goes way around the question again, he has to answer, yes, they were all connected to the Internet wirelessly. Words have meaning, right? Were these connected to the Internet? Only the ones with modems were plugged in. Plugged in. Right? Wired. They were all connected to the internet. but only ones plugged in. Playing word games. These words are very significant and important here, as John lays out a number of things for us to understand. The Greek language, John is saying, I'm part of the tribulation of what the church is experiencing. It's being horribly persecuted and being scattered abroad. John refers to it as the diaspora. Peter refers to it as the diaspora. James refers to it as the diaspora. The word spore is like you would think, that which drifts in the wind and then is planted elsewhere, germinates, and produces life. They're implying we're being persecuted, shattered, and sent all over, that we would land and plant and grow the church wherever we are sent. I'm part of that tribulation, and... Part of my tribulation because he was the leader of the church at Ephesus. Remember that when we get to the seven letters to the churches and he starts addressing the church at Ephesus. That's his church, that's where he was the pastor, that's where he had started that ministry. The island of Patmos was mostly a death colony, it was a work colony for the Romans. It was a mining facility where they mined by hammer and chisel where you would strike and turn and strike and turn and strike and turn and you would hand quarry the stone out of the island of Patmos. And they would wake them up in the dark and march them out to work as the light was dawning And they would work all day until the sun was completely set and they would march them back in darkness and put them to bed. And in the darkness awaken them and march them out as the light is dawning and as the sun set back to their cells until they died. John ends up on the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God. The Roman emperor sent him there because he tried to kill him by boiling him in oil. Big vat of oil, huge fire, wait till the oil is just rolling, and then toss John in. And John was unaffected. And that freaked the Roman emperor out. He's preaching God, and there are miracles associated with this Jesus, and now miracles associated with John, and I hate John, I want to kill him, but I just tried to kill him, and I... Guess I can't kill him, so let's just work him to death. That's what he means when I was on the island for the word of God. The Roman emperor sent me here because he hated me and was trying to kill me. John survived it, was released from his imprisonment, returned to pastor the church at Ephesus, and he was so scarred and maimed from all that he went through that at the end of his life, when they would deliver him to preach at different churches they would carry him in a chair and literally the church would be in huge anticipation and invite everyone and the place would be packed and they'd carry John in and set him down in front of the church and he would usually preach a very short sermon because he was well into his 90s at this point. There are a number of occasions where it was recorded that they would set him in front of the church and he would hold up his hands and everyone would silence themselves to a hush. And he would just say, little children, love one another. End of sermon. And he would sit in silence and let the Holy Spirit just punch holes in their heart over the fact that the very wealthy who were living indulgent lives in that church while simultaneously the slaves of Rome were starving to death in the very same room. And John would just pierce their heart with, are you actually loving one another? You know, a man who's sitting before you physically destroyed for delivering the gospel. That'll humble you in the process. The greatest... Humbling, I've ever had like that experientially was being at Calvary Chapel's East Coast Pastors Conference in Maryland a number of years ago now, and Frank Drowns spoke to us. Frank Drowns trained Jim Elliott, killed by the natives as he was in the Amazon, as a bush pilot there delivering the gospel to them. Frank trained him, brought him to the Amazon, taught them all they knew. The morning that Jim and his partners left, uh, Frank knew they were going but thought it was days later. They didn't tell Frank because they knew Frank would have insisted to be in that airplane, and they knew that they were probably not coming back, that this was the groundbreaking moment to get through to these tribes, but it was probably going to cost them their lives. They didn't return. Frank Drowns is the one who initiated the search and then went to the government and got the military involved and then went to the river and found his friends in the river and pulled their bodies out of the river. Frank is in his 90s when I heard him speak. And he has continued to go all over the world to unreach people and to preach the gospel To them, And he had a short break and came and spoke to us at the pastor's conference. And he was leaving there to go get on an airplane and go to the Inuits in northern Alaska and preach to them who had never heard the gospel. That'll make you feel so wrapped up in yourself and selfish when you see a man who has sacrificed his life that way and is still in the process of doing it. He and his wife got to go up there, got to learn the language, got to write a Bible, got to preach to them. This is what he's preparing to do. So he's done his whole life. So I saw John, they all know what he's been through. He's been sat in front of them and just saying, little children, love one another. They referred to John as the elder because everyone else was dead. He is the only one left who had been taught directly by Jesus Christ. And now he's receiving this revelation, which he's going to bring back to them after Patmos and deliver it to the church. Significant man, significant letter, and the church brushes it aside. I'm your companion in whatever you're suffering. I'm here because of the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. So just step aside into your own thought and what are we all waiting for right now? We're waiting for the trumpet of the Lord to call us up into his presence. Brothers and sisters, that's literally what that verse means. This isn't Sunday and John is feeling especially spiritual on this day. And here's a voice like a trumpet, right? I I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day. Capital T on the the. Definite article, the. There is the singular day of the Lord we're all waiting for. John was taken to the day of the Lord in the spirit. And that's why everything that follows is so detailed. He's being transported into time to see and experience these things. It's a misinterpretation to say John was feeling deeply spiritual on his day of worship and had this encounter with the Lord. It's only proper to say he was transported to. This voice of a trumpet said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and we'll just move through these because shortly the Lord explains them himself. One like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet like fine brass, a burnished brass, if your translation says that, highly polished brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Uh, You know, think about like uh, the opening of a dam and the roaring of the water that comes out of that that's what john is saying he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength you can't look straight at it you know you look up and it hurts your eyes and you pull away that's what he's saying when i saw him i fell at his feet as dead uh many of the manuscripts that we have say I fell at his feet dead. Right? And uh the new the uh King James scholars added the thought of, you know, it must have been like like being dead. It it would seem that what John is saying is I died. You know, I just I turned around and saw christ in all of his glory and i just died i couldn't i couldn't survive i had a heart attack i just i dropped dead it's debatable but it seems to be what's being said he laid his right hand on me saying to me do not be afraid i am the first and the last i am who he who lives and was dead and behold i am alive forevermore amen and i have the keys of Hades, uh, that can be hell, uh, but it also would be more accurate because Sheol, Hades, and hell are used in the scripture to refer to the place of the dead, be it heaven or hell, right? Uh, So I, I have the keys of Hades and of death, which would seem more appropriate in that understanding of Hades being the place of the dead because he has power over death. He can deliver those that he's judged to eternal death or to eternal life from death. So he has the keys to Hades and death. Now, verse 19, if you've never underlined this in your Bible before, I would strongly encourage you to do this because this is the key to the entire book of Revelation. You've probably had certain things you've read, even books of the Bible at times, and you find the theme somewhere locked in to it. And from there, you can interpret everything else, given the premise that is delivered in either a verse or a short section. He tells John three things, and the way it's written out is significant. Write the things which you have seen. Okay, pause. Everything we read from the opening of Revelation to right here is everything that he has seen. Then he's told, and the things which are. So now he's going to tell us some things which are. And then the things which will take place after this. And most significantly, you might want to double underline after this because the word is metatauta that which will take place after this so you probably are aware that he then tells him to write seven letters to the churches well everything that he's seen up to this point right write the things which you have seen now write Seven letters to the seven churches which are in Asia at this point. The things which are. Then write the things that will take place after the things which are. What things are? The church. There's a distinct moment in history where the church began. You've got a buildup that occurs with all of the history of the Scripture and then even Jesus Christ's ministry and following. But then the death sort of drops a whole bunch of people out of the program and you're left with a small group who huddle together and then in Acts chapter 2 the Holy Spirit falls and boom, thousands of people come to be the church in one day. 3,000 people and then explosively the church expands. That which has not existed prior to that moment is explosively birthed into existence. The church explosively comes into existence. Now, brothers and sisters, if we are holding to the premise that Christ is going to return into the clouds and a voice like a trumpet is going to call us up into the clouds, then the church is instantaneously going to disappear from the earth. Explosively emerge onto the earth and then rapturously be removed from the church. The word was harpazo in, uh, in Thessalonians. That the, the Lord would return in the clouds, the voice of the archangel, and that harpazo, the church would be caught up. It literally means to snatch away with violent force. Harpazo historically gets interpreted in the Latin to become raptus. And then the church in the modern English doesn't translate it into the scripture, but starts using the word rapture. Harpazo, raptus, rapture. The church is going to be violently ripped off from the surface of the earth. Write the things you just saw, John. John. Okay, now I want you to write seven letters to the churches, which are. And then when the churches are taken off the church, I want you to write the things which will be metatauta, after these things. Turn with me. Keep your bookmark there. We're almost finished. Over to chapter 4. John writes seven letters to the churches through chapter two and chapter three, and he gets to verse one of chapter four, and the opening word in chapter four is "meta At chapter one, verse nineteen, write the things which you heard, write the things which are, and then write the things which are meta tauta after these things. Chapter 4 begins with metatauta, after these things. What things? The church. After the church. Notice what happens. We'll read just a couple of verses here. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Are we not waiting for the door to open? And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet. Uh, The first voice that I heard that was like a trumpet back in chapter one that I just told you about, John is saying, speaking with me, saying, Come up here. Isn't that what we're waiting for? Door open in heaven, trumpet blast, and the voice to say, Come up here. I don't know how I'll get there. Trust me, if the door opens in heaven and you can see that and you hear the voice say, Come up here, you're going. When you read in the scripture and it said in the twinkling of an eye. I wasn't aware for years. I read that over and over again. That's an actual term. You know when no one else can see your eyelid fluttering. But you can just feel that in all day. It's like man I got this like spasm in my. That's a twinkling of an eye. One twinkling. Where your eyelid flutters down and then back up. That's how quickly the church is going to be gone just gone violently snatched away in a millisecond you're you're gone from the earth follow the rest of this i'll start again verse 1 chapter 4 after these things metatauta i looked and behold a door standing open in heaven the first voice which i heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying come up here and i will show you things which must take place after this metatauta three times that word is used Chapter one, verse nineteen. Chapter four, at the beginning of verse one, and at the end of verse one, meta tauta. And listen to me. Immediately, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. John is in heaven. Everything he tells us about in the book of Revelation, from that point forward, is viewed from the perspective of heaven. It's a remarkable outline in verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. It is an outline for the entire book. Write the things which you've seen. Write the things which are current, and then write the things that will take place after what currently is. So, back to chapter 1, looking at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angel's and the seven churches, uh, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now, the term angel is messenger. And it is where we get the term pastor from. So it's possible, but, and not to elevate pastors at all, not to elevate myself at all, uh, but the idea of, Angels are supposed to simply be deliverers of messages. Which we are supposed to simply be deliverers of messages. To deliver the word of God. So it could mean that John, the messenger of Ephesus, is being told by the Lord, you're one of these that I'm describing here. It's possible that what he's referring to as the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the angel, of the seven churches, the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches supporting the illumination. And, uh, you know, it isn't uh, the candle stand we think of with, you know, the, the wax pillar. It's it's the oil lampstand uh, of the ancient world, that, that olive shape, that. Has the flame at one end and you fill the oil, but it's a lampstand that illuminates. So, our role, angels delivering the message to us, you know, fellow ministers, as Hebrews uh, tells us, speaking to us, we open our mouths as a kingdom of priests, as verse 5 says, and deliver to the world the message that we're supposed to deliver. The combination of the messenger and the lampstand is supposed to minister to the world. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, and I'm just going to stop with this. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who, who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent And do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. For John, that must have been shocking to hear, as the elder, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Verse 6, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So uh, we've just got four minutes, and I'm I'm not going to get everything in that I want to regarding this opening to chapter 2. So I'm going to touch on a couple points, and then next week we'll back up to verse 1. And get a running start at this, John. These great um, compliments paid uh, to them—you know, appreciate you know the work, your labor, your endurance, your perseverance, all that you've been through—is wonderful accolades that are coming to them. But then that statement, nevertheless, I have this against you. you have left your first love. Um, it is the same as the firstborn from the dead spoken of in verse 5 it's not the idea of numeric order at all it's the most significant love you've you've drifted away from your most important love you need to return to that how do we do that well it's really quite simple and it's contained right here it starts out in verse 5 remember therefore repent and then do the first works so Preachers have formulated the three R's from this verse. Remember, repent, and then repeat. Remember when you first came to the Lord and how important and how fired up you were, and how you just you were gonna die for the whole thing. It was just you couldn't hardly breathe unless you were talking about Jesus Christ. Remember that? Okay, so now place that on top of where you are right now does it match up at all <laughs> to what degree is it off okay so to whatever degree it's off repent right turn around go the opposite direction you, you have to follow christ remember where you were repent of from where you are and repeat those first works. <clears throat> there's no going back right i mean i can't pack up all my junk and head back to Key, New Hampshire, you know, go street witnessing, uh, you know, in the college campus and, you know, Bible studies every night. I, guess I got a different life now. But there was a fervorance and a love that was there that I can restore and rekindle. We, we need to do these things. We need to remember, repent, and repeat what was going on in our life then. It, it, you know, summarize it this way. If there's been a stagnation that has occurred, that's got to stop. There needs to be progress, growth, motion, momentum brought back into our lives. And, and part of the reason that, you know, the pressure is on to just calm down, quiet down, sit, to settle down, you know. It's exactly what our enemy wants us to do, because this is the prime hour, prime hour to speak and to share. I I personally am convinced that this worldwide COVID virus is the plan of our enemy, Satan himself, not because I think that it's so deadly, right? I know how deadly it is. I've had it. My 83-year-old mother had it. I was hospitalized. She was hospitalized. I understand the severity. I have pastoral friends who've lost their wife, you know, passed away from COVID-19. I get how serious it is, right? But the, the real issue, tell me if you don't see this, is the isolation, the separation You know, try to talk to people in public. uh, It's more than social distancing. There is a fear that compels them away. Right? Look for opportunities to minister. Why? Because this is the final hour. This is where we're supposed to remember, repent, and repeat. Share. Open your mouth. Minister to people. We have Gospels of John out on the front table. If you carry tracts to share with people, do that. I encourage you to pick up one of those Gospels and then to go online to the Pocket Testament League and order 30 of your own. What that organization tries to do is inspire Christians to hand one of those out every day. Open your mouth and talk to people about the gospel and then take the opportunity to put the word of God. Tracks are clever, right? But faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Put put the gospel of John in their hand. Let them see the majesty of our king. Open that book up and share with the world, lest he remove our lampstand, right? We don't want to have our ability to be messengers taken away from us christ wants to pour his spirit out and then that statement and i'll close with this he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches pay attention listen the lord is telling us to be active right now in the world that's full of fear and closing itself in and cutting itself off we need to be men and women that are out there at whatever opportunity sharing this opportunity and message with whoever will listen to us amen well let's pray and then we'll spend some time in fellowship father i thank you for your word i thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters i pray that your word would have touched each of our hearts and encouraged us lord that it would have fanned the flame so to speak and caused us to be All the more excited about the opportunity you're giving us as a kingdom of priests. Lord, that we would share your love, your gospel, your grace with the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.